Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Sit back and relax, it's Brendan here with markvetgurus.com and please click over to that website and have a bit of a poke around, look at some past episodes and download some past episodes and tell your friends to subscribe. It is episode 112, Mark, Friday, December the 6th. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to jump in and tell you what happened today, Mark. You know, one of those days, one of those weeks, actually, last week, um, well, yeah, one of those days and weeks and years. Um, I had a day um, at work, at work, I'm trying to think whether it was last week or this week. Um, it was, yeah, it was this week after coming back from the conference, which we will talk about as our main topic. It was, well, gee, things happened. Um, one of the computers died um, and I spent sort of two or three days, uh, two or three hours, <laughs> felt like two or three days, trying to um, resurrect it and um, getting into the low-level stuff and booting and all my, all my nerdy stuff and worked out that, um, yeah, the hard drive or the... Or the um, SSD drive had actually died um, and I managed to confirm that so it's officially dead and fortuitously I had just ordered and this is Belinda my associate's um, computer that she uses uh, I had just ordered she'd been hassling me for ages to update her computer um, and uh, I did order one last week but it still hasn't come but um, the <laughs> monitor's there <laughs> but the actual boxes in there so I, I messed around on this day trying to trying to sort that out um and that was a crazy day with some of the some of the cases as well it was just you know one of those days where you you feel like you're treading water and um you're still going backwards mark so it was um one of those difficult days however this today was the challenge and um I was actually quite zen about it all. Um, I had a really interest in um, partial tail amputation in one of the goanna species. Which which, which goanna species? And was all geared up for that. Uh, I think this one was a – I know you are going to say that. I think it's a sand goanna, um, this one. Um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head what it was. I should know. I had it in this morning. Um, Yeah. Um, And um, it was a – it was a partial tail amputation because it got had that typical sort of um, tip of the tail that had gone necrotic and um, completely all you see is that sort of exposed necrotic bone, that stiff piece there. And this is a long-term client. They travel a fair way to, to see us. And um, I originally saw this um, lizard for metabolic bone disease way back in the day and um, managed to um, revive it from that predicament. And, um, yeah, doing really well, but... Um, it um, had this bit of necrosis of the tail tip. So I was booked in for the tail, um, partial tail amputation and we have a, a snake to do tomorrow, partial tail amputation as well. And uh, I love doing these um, surgeries. They're really good fun. And I thought, gee, I, I should record this, um, take some photos and maybe a bit of video um, and I'll do the one tomorrow as well because um, I think it would be a good little summary at one of our conferences, Mark, because I don't think anybody's done it fairly recently about the, the actual practical approach to them and how much tissue to leave and have have a bit of a pictorial 
display of how to do, how to do it. So I was all fired up for that. Had had a couple of photos taken and uh, um, knocked it down really nicely with the alfaxalone um, and intubated it. Put it on the ventilator. Everything running smooth as silk, Mark and. <laughs> I knew something was going to happen because um, you know what it's like with the reptiles. So, I don't, the, um, in theory, it works quite well, but sometimes the anaesthetics are pain in the backside um, bit for them, trying to trying to get them induced or or tubed, or the ventilator doesn't ventilate too well because you've got such a, a small diameter tube in them, and you're constantly trying to fiddle with the with the pressure um, for the ventilation. But it was all going smoothly, Haven't and then just bang, had the, the power, power went out in the clinic. Day to get it fixed. <laughs> What is going on? Yeah, yes, yes. We, we had a day off uh, where where basically Sam, one of our nurses, sat in the dark. Hi, Sam. Um, she does listen to the podcast, and uh, we had the power off for a day where the power company was supposedly upgrading the equipment in the region. And um, <laughs> yeah, that was last week or the week before. So it obviously didn't help that well, did it? Um, so the power went off and I had had, had the snake on the um, on the oxygen generator. And obviously that's, that doesn't work once the power goes off as well, because that's electrically powered and no lights in the surgery. So there we were um, getting this ready and scrubbing it up and um, holding torches and, and mobile phone um, lights over it um, because I wanted to just go ahead and lop this partial tail amputation um, off. Before. Other people, Brendan, other people much nastier than me, I wouldn't be heard saying this, but other people might be heard saying that you operating in the dark wouldn't make any difference. Yeah, that's right. Uh, boom, boom. Hang on a sec. I've, I've, I think I've got a um, sound effect. You know the sound effect that um, we need for that. No, I've lost it. There it is. Yeah, there we go. Um, so, yes. So, yeah. So I had to then unplug the oxygen generator um, supply and connect it to our little reserve emergency bottle of oxygen and had all that ready and um, then re-scrubbed and, and said, no, I just want to go ahead and do it while it's still anaesthetised um, rather than waking it up. And uh, then the power went back on, um, so I had to change it back <laughs> over again. And um, so it was a interesting morning this morning, but it all went to plan and I did get a few photos, Mark, so I'm, I am planning to to probably do that as a small case report or a series of case reports and just talk about the the tips and the tricks of partial tail amputations, which we have done previously. So that that was my day, Mark. What have you been up to? Well, I had um, a, a few meetings to go to today. They mainly talked to the accountant. It was a pretty boring day, but the rest of the week has been really busy, Brendan. It, uh, um, we've had, uh, um, sadly, a uh, motor vehicle accident in the scrub nearby to the practice about um, 11 kilometres away, and it sparked a, another one of those horrendous fires. And it's due west of us, um, and the westerly winds just are clouding, like it's this horrid orange tinge. Um, it it sort of looks like we're on Mars or Tatooine or something. The sun is, um, yeah, it doesn't look natural, Brendan. doesn't look natural. What? Well, you mentioned that I'm always operating in the dark. I think you're always putting out fires, Mark. So um, there's, there's the comeback for Where's you. Where's your sound effect? Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, um, and I and I and I heard on the grapevine because we um, contact we, we spoke to each other via chat um, during the week that um, you caught up with your mentee, and I, I caught up with my new Ava, my new um, graduate um, mentee, um, who I mentor in from the AVA, and she's graduating from the University of Melbourne. I think the graduation ceremony is next week, Mark, and uh, yeah, so I, I met her and we had. Um, we had coffee and a bit of lunch and a bit of a chat. So hi to Ava if she's listening. I don't think I told her about the podcast. I was um, perhaps I should have, perhaps I shouldn't have, um, but I didn't. And um, yeah, so you caught up with your mentee. Was that the AVA mentoring program? It as is well, indeed, mate? and the, I think it's a wonderful program, Brendan. And I'm so uh, I feel the resources that the AVA provide us to uh, make that happen are so. Um, they're just great resources, well organised. They make you know one of the things about um, nominating to act as a mentor, um, and I think more and more people in our profession should do it. Um, is that you sort of don't know exactly what it entails, um, and it you know I don't know leadership, uh, senior advice, support, all those things. But the thing I love about the AVA program is that it's. Uh, it's well endowed with uh, supportive material and, um, you know, those first meetings, um, there's a, a good guide to, to let you know what sort of topics to cover. Um, and I've, I've found it uh, a uh, – over you, both you and I have been involved for a, a while now and um, and you sort of – I don't know, the, the – uh, I keep in touch with all the mentees that I've previously been involved in and involved with and um, – and and I reckon I learn as much from them as they ever learn from me. So I think it's an excellent program. I agree one hundred percent. Oh, that was I, awesome you, timing. You, you always caught me. You always caught me there. Um, yes, uh, and uh, gee, I tell you what. Yeah, I tend to I tend to chat a little bit when I'm when I'm with the, my mentees and really quiz them about life and the universe. So. Um, Hopefully they'll put up with it, but I, I, I think I think the important thing is with the mentor, mentee mentor program is that gee, it's just it's voluntary and it's and, and I think some people who would be mentees in it don't want to go ahead with it because they think it's something very formal and I view it as completely opposite and I don't care if the the person never contacts me again, um, but. I'm there in case they they want a, a, an independent opinion about work or life or a bit of advice or, or just to chat and and vent about something. And um, I've found that I've had mentees who have who have um, contacted me a lot during the the year or so that that, that the official program runs for. Um, and I've had other mentees who only contact me occasionally, and that's fine, you know. And I, and I think the important bit about these sort of processes of mentoring is you just you know you just take it as it goes and and everybody's different and some like some like to contact via face to face and others um, want to send just sms or texts and others um email etc um yeah i haven't uh, i must admit mark i haven't had anybody yet who sent me letters um i think that's gone out the window hasn't it um nobody actually corresponds by letter any written word anymore to me which um which would be interesting it'd be a bit of a slow process with the mail here in australia i think <laughs> i think um but but uh, there's something about um writing on paper and and the flow of ink i'd i would love to get a letter but 
Um, I think that um, from my point of view, um, I've had a number of mentors um, and I, the, the, I don't necessarily call them up each week and bounce ideas off them. Some of them who I think have been really important to my career, I've only spoken to like once a year, but it's knowing that they're there for me, that, um, you know, I'm not alone when I have a, a problem case, when I have a problem client, when I have a problem in life in another way, um, I, uh, I I know there's someone to bounce my thoughts off and keep them in perspective, and and it's my hope that um, that the same thing happens with our mentees, at least to some degree, Brendan. Yep, I agree, one hundred percent. So, hello have, to have all ever, the. Have I ever told you that you're my mentor? <sighs> no, now you're just being silly. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's true. It's true. I reckon you've got to surround yourself with um, with caring people who understand and listen, and um, and they lift you up. And you what? are Brendan. You're my mentor. What was that? What did you say? I, I said that a little bit. Oh. I said you are my mentor. Oh, okay. All right. Well, with that, Mark, I'm going to jump into my news story. <laughs> And, gee, I like the pictures of this one um, and I'm a bit of a visual person sometimes, um, even though I do like somebody to send me a letter as well, Mark. I'm thinking about your comment a few minutes ago. Rare mummies of lion cubs, crocodiles, birds have been discovered in Egypt and Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities has revealed details of recently discovered animal mummies, which they said included two lion cubs as well as several crocodiles, Mark, birds and cats. And um, I don't know whether you've looked at this um, article yet, but, gee, the way they've wrapped up that mummified cat, um, that cat is amazing, isn't it? Um, It it just looks fantastic. We will have the link link to this um, on the website. And the lion as well, if you scroll down, excuse me, to the um, halfway down the page there, Mark, the mummified lion picture as well um yeah so they also found wooden and bronze cat statues representing the ancient goddess bastet um and uh stated that they they frequently found mummified cats but the recovery of a lion is rare and the first lion skeleton was found in 2004 um so yeah um i didn't see the pictures have you seen the mark um of the mummified crocodiles or birds um yeah yeah. no no i couldn't see those i'll have to go searching for them but the lion just um i don't know it's uh doesn't it leaves you with mixed feelings doesn't it it's um it's uh um i don't know beautiful it's it's pleasant to look at you can the, the ears the way that they've arranged the ears um yeah i i i but at the same time it's a it's a mummy, so I'm appropriately scared. <laughs> but um, so I have mixed yes. feelings. About so that's um, well, that's my news story, Mark. I'm a bit on archaeology. What's your first or last news story? Hang on. My first and last. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> I'm, I'm just flicking over to the the story. Getting. Oh goodness me! As usual, you're you're on the ball um, here. Technologically, my story is, and it will come as no surprise to you, is the Guardian newspaper in Australia runs a uh, vote each year for the last uh, three years, and I think it's going to be an annual thing from now on. They run a vote on um, the uh, most popular bird, 
voted, which bird is voted uh, bird of the year. Um, and it's a really interesting competition, Brendan. I really enjoy it. Um, I voted this year. Did you vote? No, I did not vote. So, um, yeah. Oh, goodness. We'll have to make sure we yes. circulate. We'll have to circulate the links so that everyone does vote next year. And I'm very proud to announce that um, the black-throated finch was this year's successful candidate in the Australian Bird of the Year. It uh, just beat out the tawny frogmouth after a considerable, um, well, there was, there, was, there was a flurry, a flurry of, of uh, accusations and then a bot a computerised program designed to uh, repeatedly and endlessly vote for sulphur-crested cockatoos was caught, um, and uh, and the sulphur-crested cockatoo was unfortunately therefore disqualified. Um, and so our um, our beautiful black-throated finch won this year, and probably won on the back of very very good reason for its popularity being the black-throated finch of course the southern subspecies is the one critically threatened by the development of the adani gold mine in the galilee basin coal mine in the galilee basin um and uh and yeah, it's almost certain to uh, any development in that area is um, is almost certain to drive that species already on the brink uh, over the edge and into extinction. So I do worry. I've got one question for you though, Brendan. The, these um, I don't know these uh, um, promotions, if you like these uh, these events held in um, in. Uh, the sight of the general public, um, how much difference do you actually think they make? I, I know BirdLife Australia is justifiably proud of the the uh, space in the mainstream media that they're able to generate with um, this Bird of Australia election. Um, but, jeez, uh, how much difference do you think it makes? Nothing. Oh, you are just so depressing sometimes. Well, uh, but I think you're right. I, the, that's the, the problem. I think it. It you know people uh, cast their vote. They whether it's uh, for the the uh, uh, black throated finch or the regent honey eater or the swift parrot, and then they go back to their normal life and they're aware, maybe a little bit more, that these birds are critically endangered. But um, but substantial change to the way that we live that might allow them to survive as a species just doesn't happen. Yes, and I was going to ask a similar question to you. Well, I had sort of two comments or questions. One was, do you think these sorts of surveys or or voting systems are, are, are worthwhile? As in, why do them? And I presume they do it to try and try and point the camera, so to speak, and light on um, some of these species, perhaps ones that are a little bit less common, um, but people will vote on them. And and, and that led to my second question is, um, do you think these are rigged? And you sort of hinted that potentially these vote, this voting system is rigged and not just by the by these um, automated systems, but do you think people say, let's vote for, you know, sulphur-crested cockatoo this year and um, you, you contact all your mates and they all vote for it um, and, and there we go, the sulphur-crested as the, as the um, bird of the year, Mark. So, yeah, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit 
you're a little bit cynical. Um, I do, a little I do, bit. I do think. Yes. I do think that um, that uh, what there, there is some good, like um, that one of the main you know researchers are the main beneficiary of the increased attention, and certainly the the um, the uh, difficult bird research group at the ANU. Um, they've uh, leveraged the attention on a number of species over the last few years to increase the amount of money they can raise and and uh, active work they can do. Um, and they've really made a difference to our swift parrots, our, um, to a lesser extent, the orange-bellied parrot, the, the uh, um, pardalode in Tasmania. These birds benefit from management of their environment, um, the placement of nest boxes, the type of nest boxes that are placed so that sugar gliders can't get in and eat the young. All these things make a big difference. But, geez, I what did I read? Um, uh, the 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 BirdLife Australia recently published an estimate of the cost that it would. Uh, you know that it would be required uh, to significantly, you know, to for all the species that are currently critically endangered, um, what it would cost to ensure their survival. And through you know the wonders of uh, creative accounting, they came up with a number between one billion and two billion dollars. And of course, uh, in discussion that becomes something well what a pipe dream that is the government's never going to do that the general public is never going to accept a a billion dollars spent on endangered species but um they point a friend of mine pointed out that in australia at the moment the uh uh, private you know pet owners uh, spend 1.1 billion on dog collars and harnesses so it's not a ridiculous sum of money to be talking about and maybe things like this do um, raise the public consciousness and they might not make an immediate difference this year, but hopefully there's an increased number of people that think about the endangered black-throated finch and and um, what we're doing as a, as a society, as a country, to put those animals in that dangerous position and hopefully in the future it will change. Okay. You've convinced me it was a worthwhile thing to do and they should keep doing it. Although reading through it, they have three three rounds of voting and by the look of it, um, the first round, they then narrow down to I think 10 or 50 birds, um, top 10 progress into the final round mark and um, one of the paragraphs uh, made me laugh and I'll, I'll read it out in its entirety. Drama also erupted on the final day of round one voting after a nail-biting three-way tussle between the wedge-tailed eagle, the galah and the willy-wagtail came down to a handful of write-in votes. Um <laughs> Get a life. I think some people need to just, uh, you know, not be so serious about um, voting for the bird of the year. But um, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail now um, based on that. Um, but, yes, no, I, I can see the point of it. And they um, later on in the article, Mark, I, I retract all my, all my negative comments there. Um, they do talk about, I'm trying to find it, um, um, the biannual competition was a fantastic celebration, a joyous event, and a way to raise awareness of bird converse, uh, conversation, conservation. So, yes, um, I think it is a good thing. Um, so there we go. It's a bit like our our, um, our wildlife photography awards, isn't it, Mark? It um, helps help sometimes raise the awareness of these amazing creatures we have around. So 
there you go. <sighs> so did I backpedal enough um, doing all of that, Mark, or not? Um, I, I think, I think not. Your, your comments were entirely justifiable and I think um, we do have to be a little bit, um, you know, it is. I think it is taken with a little bit of, as a bit of lighthearted fun that does just raise awareness and I think, um, you know, the Australian Electoral Commission is not involved in overseeing the votes and so I do think there is a little bit of opportunity for uh, creative electioneering creative voting um but i don't think bad things happen in this election as a consequence unlike some others brendan yes okay enough politics let's jump into our main topic and our main topic well it's just a general chat a general discussion of something that um well i didn't see you there mark and that was the unusual pet and avian veterinarians conference which is a special interest group of the australian veterinary association our annual conference mark which was last week or last weekend um so it went from a thursday to a saturday and it was held here in my hometown in melbourne mark so i didn't see you there yes you did not i was not well you know (laughs) you know of of the many bad traits i could list that i have chief amongst them is uh how badly organized i am and ask annie ask annie what she thinks of my organizational abilities um and the consequence of poor organization in this instance was that one of our wonderful uh, veterinarians at the sugarloaf animal hospital dr lily was able to attend um but i had to stay back and see some clients Somebody has to do the work, Mark, and pay the bills, and it was you this year. So, But uh, you were sorely missed, and uh, I did see Lily as we spoke off air before we started recording um, in the distance during one of the breaks, and I I was going to head over to her, but I got caught up with some administrative things, trying to help stop Mm -hmm. things go pear-shaped with with a couple of minor issues we had. So I didn't end up chatting to her much, so I apologise to her that I didn't see her there. And you did mention that um, you were going to ask her to come up and say hello to me because we have not yet met face to face from from a distance um we may have locked eyes but that's about it and uh and you did mention that she's um a little bit shy i think um you said so yeah um well perhaps next year um unless she's looking after the looking after the shop um so yeah so well let me let me let me just talk about a couple of things in the in the conference and then i think we should um, work through a, um, some of the, the presentations, which were amazing, amazing mate. And, um, they were great this year. So, yeah, the first thing I'd like to chat about is our, our dinner, and it was called Dinner in the Dark. And uh, why? Because it was completely in the dark, Mark, and this is, I think it's the only place in Australia that holds this, there's several cities in the world where they hold this similar similar um, dinner in the dark and the whole concept of it mark and i think you know the concept is that not only is a dinner in the dark but it is you are waited upon by people with sight problems so um 
So the whole whole aim of it is to to learn a little bit about um, what it is potentially like um, if you have limited vision, Mark. Um, so um, before we went into the completely darkened room, we had to remove all items that might might may emit a light, including you know Apple watches and and obviously your mobile phones, etc. You know torches, um, um, any sort of any sort of um, secreted um, lighting system that people wanted to take in and they just gave us a bit of an overview of what was going to happen and it was a a full-on three-course dinner with matching beer or matching wine um, as well but they didn't tell you what the food was Um, so we then sort of trundled in there in the dark with with um, well I was second person in our little train so I had to have my left hand on the left shoulder of the person in front of me as our um, sight impaired helper um, took us into the room and um, sat us down and then they just said well in front of you is a napkin (laughs) a napkin and um, a fork and a knife and in the middle of the table um in between the person sitting opposite you is a carafe <laughs> of water and two glasses of water. So away you go. Um, try and um, pour yourself some water each and um, I'll be back in a moment. Um, so, But they showed us methods of, of sort of doing that. And surprisingly enough, cut into the chase, nobody ended up um, exiting the room at the end of the night with with food or, or wine all over them, um, so you did manage to cope, even though it was pitch black, and um, it was a bit of a challenge trying to guess what particular foods were being served um, in um, each each meal, and also you had to guess the, the, those sort of matched wines. I um, I could tell it was a sparkling, some sort of sparkling white for the for the entree, um, and the main was a red wine, and the the dessert one they gave was very sweet. I thought it was a port, but I think it was a musket as well. Um, and then we had a debrief afterwards where uh, after we'd been taken back out into the light, they would then um, go through each of the menus, uh, the, the um, you know, the, the, the um, non um, just just a standard sort of menu, the the vegetarian menu, the vegan menu, etc. And they would um, describe what you were eating and um, yeah, you you know, I think most people guessed um, a reasonable amount, but some of the things we did not guess at all. The the dessert was love, fantastic. It was really really nice, um, um, and and um, most people thought it was some sort of cheesecake. Um, with um with with sort of um fruit in there um, wow but they told us it was made from tofu mark it was some sort of tofu um thing and there's no way I would have picked it it was it was really really tasty really nice so so yeah that was quite an experience and and we were a little bit worried about people attending the dinner because we did not tell them that it was going to be this dinner in the dark um, and all that was on the program on the registration was um, um, <laughs> you are going to be so kept fun. in the dark about the dinner. <laughs> and funnily enough, um, funnily enough, I, I think nobody actually picked that it was a dinner in the dark, um, even though a fair number of the delegates were staying at the conference venue and the dinner in the dark has held at that that hotel and in the lift in and there's only one lift in the hotel there's a big a big um a big plastered note about the dinner in the dark um and for the whole first day of the conference um the the 
um, placemats where you put your little glasses of water in the conference room. Um, mentioned dinner in the dark, uh, but um, but I did get up at the start of the conference and say, look, I need to talk about the dinner, and the dinner in the dark is exactly that. And if there's anybody who's challenged with with panicking, um, being in pitch pitch, pitch darkness, um, they can offer you the same food, but in the light, yeah. or you can pull out, and we would refund the refund the um, dinner price because they'd pre prepaid. And I think we had one person pull out, and on the night, I think one maybe two people had to hop back out into the light for a short period of time and then go back in the dinner. But it was a it was a unique experience and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think from all the people I spoke to, there was only one or two who thought it was just so-so, but the rest thought it was a fantastic idea and finding out a little bit about people with, with other disabilities. So so that was a dinner, Mark. Is, I reckon that is an outstanding opportunity to like just open your mind and I think sometimes when we have those like you know we eat a meal when we enjoy the the wine the visual aspects of it uh they contribute so significantly but they tend to dominate and so I've got no doubt that that dinner in the dark would have been well it would have opened up other sensory focus foci of the meal and it would have been I reckon it would have been ex- a, a, well maybe not exciting but it, bloody hell it would have been interesting yeah it was um I must admit as I was walking in there I was feeling a little bit apprehensive going into the pitch blackness there and um but yeah by the end of the night I was feeling quite relaxed there I think um I don't think anybody fell asleep in the dark and it was interesting chatting to the you know chatting to your um next door neighbors and and the people across from you um in the dinner because you cannot see them obviously and and how much you know eye to eye contact normally plays in a conversation and even even um, you know gesticulating with your with your hands etc and um, yeah it was um, it was very very interesting and speaking of gesticulating um, we should jump on to the actual conference itself and I want to talk about Vittorio Capello who was our um, keynote speaker and he does gesticulate a fair bit because he is Italian um, he comes from Milano and um, we were lucky enough to have Vittorio out for for the conference and he just for interest Mark, he's, he's currently on a on an extended I think about a week to nine day trip around Australia and uh, I have seen his itinerary and he's he's done the crazy overseas person visit to Australia thinking that perhaps the country's not quite as big as he, as he thought and um, for instance he flew into uh, I contacted him today actually he flew into Alice Springs the central Australia and he was doing a day trip out to Uluru um, which was called Ayers Rock previously um, the big rock and that is a bus trip that's 500 kilometers each way and um, then he was flying out again the next day. So I think he had to get up at 6 in the morning and the bus arrives back at midnight the next night and then he flies out first thing in the morning. And I think he did a similar thing with he flew up to Cairns, um, tropical north Queensland, and spent then one day, a little day trip out to the Great Barrier Reef and then back and then flew out again. Um, and I expect he did similar with his visit to Sydney as well. And um so he did that typical sort of see see fifty iconic things about a country in 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 one week, and 
and go home exhausted. But, um, you know, he hasn't been to Australia before and he wanted to try and put, pack as much as he could in at the, at, within, that, um, within that week or so. But one of the difficulties we had, Mark, with the conference, and I know you know about this, is that after the first day he started <laughs> losing his voice and this is our keynote speaker. And not, a, not only did he have about six, uh, I think six or seven, I think six um, one to one and a half hour presentations or lectures, he also had two lab classes on the Saturday for um, rodent and um, so guinea pig and, and, and rabbit dentistry, um, which went all day. Um, and both of those were basically... Um, well, one was almost was completely sold out for the twenty people, and the second one had ten in there. So we were panicking at the end of the. Well, actually, it was the start of the second day. I had a little message from him about five in the morning, five a.m., saying, uh, "Brendan, <laughs> I am not feeling well. I need medicine." Uh, <laughs> and and um, wanting some antibiotics. Um, I don't think the antibiotics would have kicked in by the end of the conference, but um, he thought that you could just go down to a chemist here. And then in Australia, if you need antibiotics, um, you need to go and um, go and see a, a, a GP, a human doctor for that. Um, and I think back in back in um, in Italy, perhaps it's not quite as strict over there. And um, he was hoping to just grab some antibiotics. Um, but um, Tristan, who was the co-convener, helped. Um, helped by dropping into a, a, a little pharmacy on the way to the um, conference and he um, and we plied him full of um, all sorts of um, antihistamines and, and not he had some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and um, he soldiered on. He had a bit of a whisper of a voice for the second day but um, once he learnt that the lapel microphone could still pick up his voice, um, he didn't try to project his voice and even with a whispering sort of voice we could still hear him fairly well. So so we saved it in the end but by that time we'd also managed to have about three or four people um, that could potentially present um, a different presentation in, in case he did end up crashing completely. Isn't, so, isn't it amazing that in how many years have we been doing this annual uh, conference? 15 or 16, yeah, at least 16. 15. It might be 16. And, and this really is the first time we've had a, um, a, a we've really had to give thought to the fact that a speaker might not be able to. Um, complete their allotted it we've actually been really lucky to get to this point but but it is a uh a measure of the quality of the attendees that you could reach out and relatively quickly come up with some some quality replacements if they were necessary fortunately not fortunately victoria was able to discharge his responsibilities um and uh and geez i've i've so um, admired his correspondence, his email discussions, and I wish I'd been there to hear his ever quietening voice. Uh, yes, he was. He was. He was excellent. Not only his presentations, and and basically, his, his, the presentations that we asked him to give were his sort of series on on um, diagnostic imaging of the head of head of rabbits and advanced imaging. So, talking a little bit about CT scans um, for dental disease and also the surgical treatment of dental disease and the, and the sort of um, his thoughts on on that whole process of what works and what doesn't work and um, he also touched on the ear and nasal surgery of, of rabbits as well um, and the lab class was great he basically went through the whole 
the whole standard process of ex- extraction of um, incisors and um, cheek teeth um, in in mainly rabbits, but um, some of the delegates had a bit of a crack at the guinea pigs we had there as well. And um, gee, it was quite. I've got some um, interesting photos. I'll have to send you, Mark. Um, Tristan, um, who who I mentioned previously, he um, he had freezer full of um, all sorts of bodies, and we had lots of um, bodies also used for um, the nurses' day as well. And they um, had a had a whole. Um, whole session of um, pretending um, and practising sort of basic handling and restraint and and, and blood collection um, with the cadavers as, as a big range of reptiles and birds and, and mammals and wildlife as well. Um, but, yeah, so Tristan hired a van um, and, he, and he threw in these bodies and um, it was quite – it's always fun watching. And it had a really, as I mentioned, one little lift, um, a very tiny lift in this hotel, a fairly old hotel, um, and packing this lift with with all these bodies, and at the end of the break, I helped Tristan bundle them back into the little hire van, and um, we we um, bundled all the all the um, all the bodies that were were used and unused in, into the body bags, and then put them in the little. Well, it's what it is. What's the trolley that you know the trolley that you have in the in the. Um, in the hotel where people normally carry your bags and that, it has little hooks for for, for putting your, um, taking your coat or whatever as well, you know, the, um, that they wheel through the lobby. And we and we piled it all on there and there was bits of, you know, there was one of the little bags broke and there was a bit of a um, kangaroo foot sticking out and there was a bit of blood oozing all over the place. And, oh God. and, we, and we got to the second level. We were heading down to the basement to put it in the, in the van and um, somebody um, called the lift halfway down, and um, they the lift doors open, and there was this family there, and they looked at us, and they looked at the bodies, and they um, they just stood there. They didn't come in the lift, so we just kept going. Um, so yes, it was um, quite interesting, um, um, interesting. Um, and then um, he had to sort of hose down the hose down the um, van once he'd once he'd. Got rid of all the bodies, Mark. Um, and I'm going to tell you a funny little story, completely unrelated to this conference. Um, and I don't know whether I've told you this. Um, I was due to give some frozen bodies um, to the university for use, and um, I um, was dropping them off in the city, in the CBD in, in Melbourne here, near a car park. And uh, the person who was going to take them down to Werribee, which is a vet school, um, which is the other side of the city, and was meeting me there. And uh, I sent her a text or I phoned her just as I was about to arrive before the car park and she didn't have a, um, a little um, entrance to the car park. So we we're going to meet outside of the front of the car park and she said, oh, I'm just waiting in the car, in my car, just outside the car park. Um, and um, so I found a, a little spot near where I thought she was and I saw this woman across the road and um, I ran across the road and I tapped on the window and I was just about to say to her I've got the bodies in the bags um, and I realised it wasn't her. (laughs) So I almost, and this is in Carlton and, you know, I thought it was in that they may have thought I was part of the mafia um, there because, and I was very close to actually pulling the bodies, um, the, this body bag out of my the boot of the car and, and running across um, with it, holding it up in front of this um, <laughs> this woman who just happened to be sitting in her car, and I was whacking, tapping on the window, getting her to roll down the window, and um, saying, "Look, I've got the dead bodies for you." Um, so, 
So I quickly backpedaled with that and said, oh, sorry, I, I think I've got the wrong person. <laughs> so there you go. So let's get on to the main topic, which we've um, almost run out of time. <laughs> and uh, I think we should talk about a couple of the um, a couple of the presentations. Mate. Presentation. So, I don't know. I just literally don't know how you're going to do this, Brendan, because I I wasn't there. I did have uh, Dr. Lily attend the conference from our practice, and um, she's given me what she perceived as a couple of the highlights. Um, I also had um, Emma, one of our wonderful nurses, attend the nurse day. So I sort of almost feel like I was there. Um, uh, in a in a sort of like observe the presentation sense, and I honestly don't know how you're going to go through these and go. Yep, we're going to talk about this one, but not this one because they're all good. They were all very good, and I must admit, I didn't have one delegate say um, it wasn't a good conference. And uh, in fact, I had a few say that it was the best, the best um, bunch of. Um, topics and presentations and, and very practical um, ones. Um, yeah, well, one of the highlights, Mark, was the was and, and you'd, you'd like this one if you haven't already looked looked over it, is The Ecology of the Central Bearded Dragon by Jonathan Howard. And, gee, it's an amazing um, study that he did um, over the last few years and he wants to continue it where he's been looking at the ecology of the bearded dragon and getting some actual hard information some data there of of everything from the humidity in the wild um the basking temperatures the body surface temperature and the ground temperature at the same time um the air temperature he was recording it was amazing all the stuff and in fact his his presentation was so good that he was a standout winner of the toady award mark our, our most um int- what do we call it the most um entertaining and informative informative presentation and um he was a worthy winner and he won by by an actual mile um you know a bit like the bird maybe there was an automatic bot voting with this one mark but he, he won by a huge margin and deservedly so so now it was it was fascinating and also talking about the uv the uv index there as well um and a, a few takeaways with that and, and also diet mark there some of the plant species that they were that they were eating and um you know he sort of um, regarded them as sort of opportunistic feeders there mark um and he had had some great video of them eating um you know i'm um, going nuts when 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 they found a termite mound and we're just eating lots of termites <laughs> but also ants wood roaches wasps um and and a large range of um, um flowers and, and native plant species as well um yeah it's, so, it's um, jonathan does an outstanding job of um one of the things I love about his work, and I, I really, it was, there were many disappointments about not being there, but not being there to listen to um, his presentation because he's, he's a, um, he's, I've known him through the reptiles in New South Wales since before he was a veterinarian, since before he was a veterinary student. And, uh, and so I feel quite connected to his work. And we've talked about it many times, but I love the way he brings a critical approach scientific evidence-based appraisal to he's not he's not uh swayed by the the opinions of people that keep them in captivity he gets out there he sees them in the field and collects hard data and bloody hell he busts some myths about the way they should be kept in captivity i reckon brendan Absolutely, and and well, lots of take home messages there. I mean, one of the big ones was size and weight of them and diet, and um, 
and basically saying that that you know we way overfeed our, our pet bearded dragons um, because when you look at the average average weight of all the animals, it was and let's have a look. All animals um, weight um, three hundred and forty one grams. I think was the the average there. Um, females two hundred and fifty four grams and. Um, maximum weight was 553 you know half a kilo and that was an exceptional one because the average was a lot less than that and when you look at our pet bearded dragons that we see and they're vastly overfed and he he tied it in beautifully with the concern with 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 our um our follicular stasis um with them and that um a large a large um influence or, or or push um for them to go into um breeding mode is if they have food in their system or not, and that a lot of the time um, during the um, season where there's not much food there, um, they'll obviously not be um, put in on weight there and they don't go into reproductive um, 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 phase with the mark. Um, so, you know, avoiding excessive feeding, according to um, what Jonathan says, um, has been a successful means um, of preventing captive breeded dragons from laying infertile clutches because he thinks that, um, you know, they go into a negative or, or neutral calorie intake during a fair period of, of the year. And what do we do? We feed them up like big fat blobs and we um, and we feed them way too much and inappropriate things and they're, and they're massive. I, you know, the, the heaviest bearded dragon I've got, Mark, and I keep a picture of it that I've ever seen, um, I keep a picture of it in the consultation room. Was just under one kilo. Oh my goodness! That is an obese bearded dragon. So, so that was one of the big takeaway things that sort of. And, and he was even saying that you know, I, 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 and I think I'm going. I will be changing my recommendations with my bearded dragon care sheets. I generally say to clients, feed your bearded dragons. You know, two to three times a week. I think I'll be cutting it back to say, fed it one or two times a week. Um, and um, limited amount of food during that that period as well, and it is isn't it um, just typical um, of the consults? The consults that I have with um, bearded dragon owners, particularly novice bearded dragon owners, is that they will often feed them twice a day. Um, yes, and, and is it any wonder that they, you know, they they they're not travelling the vast distances they do through territory through harsh territory in the Australian outback? They're restricted in their level of activity they don't have to do that um, exercise to find relatively nutrient poor food um, they've got loads of nutrient rich food it's it's um it's almost like a system designed to make them have metabolic problems yep yep absolutely so yeah very interesting the other one um in that particular article was um mortality rate and life expectancy um and Pretty amazing statistics, Mark. Um, one of one of the studies found that um, that he he quoted um, the mortality rate of central bearded dragons within the first year of life is ninety eight point six percent succumbing to predation, dehydration, and cold. After the first year of life, the mortality rate reduces to twenty nine point one percent, with a life expectancy of three point nine four years. So basically, four year life expectancy there. Um, is um, what they found, especially with predators in their environment. Um, and yeah, gee, you know, and we, um, we, you know, I think we're doing a good job in a way, in that we 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 push push the life to 
life out to what 10 12 i've seen 15 year old bearded dragons and here in the wild the life expectancy is around about four years of age mark for the ones that get past that 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 first year of life and survive that first year where 98.6 of them will succumb um during that first 12 months so yeah so it was gee, it was just it was just packed with amazing information and some fantastic um fantastic um videos he had as well as photographs and one of his first little videos at the start of his presentation was um you know people asked me how to catch bearded dragons and he said well you just walk up to them um and he just had a video of wandering up just casually wandering up to a, a central bearded dragon and grabbing it off a branch you know it's that simple with them he said the only trick is you just don't um look. you don't um look them in the eye you just sort of yeah you just look like you're walking past them and they're quite easy to quite easy to grab so so that was one of the standout um papers um that i that i um i listened to mark um and i must admit i did stay in well i did stay in most of the presentations i had to run around a little bit but um um i did manage to um poke my head in in virtually um all of them even even if i wasn't there for the whole time um victoria's ones were excellent as well um the the other one i'd touch on it and it's one we've done as a as a podcast a few few um um previously or or in the future (laughs) if it's one that we've um, that we've kept mark and that's the um challenge of diagnosing renal disease in rabbits by lizzie um and um she did a, a, a um a fantastic um a fantastic summary of um, renal disease in rabbits. And, yes, we did do it previously, didn't we, episode 109. And basically that episode 109 was a summary of Lizzie's work there. So she she did a bit of an update on that and, and the thoughts about using that urea protein creatinine ratio um, there is some, there is some thought that um, SDMA may um, may um, be standardised for rabbits, but um, whether or not it's very sensitive or not, the jury's still out with that one, Mark. So, yeah, so that was another you know, one. Um, um, I was just going to say another one. That, I've um, yeah, just I, I wasn't there. I can't critically um, uh, be constructive, but um, one of the things that I love about the UPAV conference is how. Um, immediately practical it is that the things that you know you hear um, Jonathan or Lizzie or any of the other speakers say you you really can take the information directly on Thursday or Friday and speak to it in a consult on Monday Um, that's one of the things I love one of the many things I love about the UPAV conference such a focus on the on the in the presentations not on um, you know remote research that might in five or ten years have an effect on the way that you practice but immediacy the fact that um the information oh yes practical information you can use the day you get back into into your clinic yeah and this well gee i want to go through so many but there's i'll, I'll probably just do three more mark um one is helen mccracken um who Many of you who are reptile um, veterinarians or have an interest in reptiles know that Helen is the person who did the original development of the anatomical positions of, of um, organs in snakes. She's the one who who, who did the, the original necropsies on snakes and worked out the, the ratios of, of snout to vent length and snout to 
lump lengthen and worked out where all the all the organs are in snake's mouth. She did an amazing presentation on unveiling the mysteries of the reptile cloaca or cloaca and navigating it for diagnostic purposes because she was finding it frustrating with different reptile species, whether it's Chelonians or our, 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 our snakes or our our um, our, our lizards um, of of trying to work out the anatomy and, and, and whether things sit the way they're described traditionally in the literature. And basically she thought, no, bugger this, I'm going to try and work out what, what's happening there. And she did the same process with this and did lots of necropsies and, and, and endoscopy. And she worked out and she has unraveled the whole mysteries of them. And um, they are completely different, um, the way that, that the way those openings um, occur in um, in reptiles and um, even gave some practical um, tips about managing to do um, chloracoscopy where we, where we inject dye, et cetera, into the, into the various um, openings, Mark, in, in, in that particular region in the reptile. So it was, it was amazing. Um, so um, that's all I'm going to say about that one. And there was two more, um, and these were, again, very practical. Um, and that was um, um, Tegan um, Stevens, and, and, uh, which was the case report. And, it, and the case report title was The Use of Human yes. Earlobe Stretchers for Rabbit Ear Surgery. So, and you've had these, I'm sure you've had clients who come in and they've done the earlobe stretches where they've got a hole in their ear and you can basically throw a basketball through their earlobe because they've they've put these little human earlobe stretches in there. And Tegan did a, a really neat, unique case report um, with the use of these stretches um, and she was using a five millimetre one only, a little stent or a little um, um, opening that she would suture in or just pop in or glue in, um, suture usually I think, um, for the ear surgeries. So those, you know, and I think that's one of the challenges of these ear surgeries, whether you do a full ear canal ablation or a partial or any variation thereof, it's trying to keep that um, opening open, Mark, and um, she decided, hey, what about putting one of these little earlobe um, rubber little bungs in there and um, see if that works? And um, she showed several of these cases that she's used it, and it seems to be quite a useful product and very in- inert. And, um, yeah, it was very impressive, that case report. So I'm looking forward to heading online, Mark, and buying some of these little earlobe stretches, and they are supposedly very cheap um, and using them. So I'm sure you'd be interested in that because you do a fair number of those rabbit um, canal ablations and variations, don't you? I think you? Lily's already on to eBay and uh, and um, looking at the various sizes. And, and um, it surprised me that they aren't very expensive, but, um, well, I'll be interested to see how they do go in our cases. And the last one, Mark, before we finish, was Glynis Lamb, who spoke on applications for thermoplastic film in avian and exotic patients. And what is thermoplastic film? Well, it's very very similar to, to these thermoplastics that we may already use, and that's those mouldable um, little um, casting materials like vet-like, etc. But um, she's very heavily into cosplay. So she uses these, these thermoplastic film, again, you can buy on eBay to, to make um, various 
cosplay outfits and um, actually at the end of her presentation she showed this amazing um, sort of wings she had made um, through this um, thermoplastic or hobby thermoplastic material which you can readily buy purchase and um, it is um, cheaply available and you can buy it from online stores ebay craft stores etc etc and um yeah she's been using them um in various ways you know so so the cosplay people use them for making lightweight you know props and armor and and those sort of things when they're doing their little cosplay um, um conferences and um yeah she thought well i'm using this for my cosplay and making outfits from it what why don't i use these because they're they're lightweight they're strong um they're waterproof they're non-toxic and and basically inert um so you can mold them and and cast them and, and she uses them for exactly that so you add, add she uses a heat gun um to um to to make them malleable and then um uses them for all sorts of things for so little splints and and um, um um is finding more and more sort of processes or, or applications for them mark um, so yeah that was quite funny and um I was I was only disappointed when Lily um, related the story of that that particular Glennis's presentation to me, um, and she, and Lily's very excited to give that a crack too. Um, but um, I was just disappointed that Glennis didn't do her presentation in cosplay. That would have just like been awesome. Yes, it would have been. It would have been. Um, yeah. So that was just another one that I thought, gee, there's something else that. Um, so she's using it instead of, um, for instance, the. Uh, the Sally's need it, you know, that traditionally we use for the reptiles and she wants to use that for the Chelonian shell repair as well, this this thermoplastic as well. So I think it's got a lot of a lot of um, um, fantastic use. So, you, can, you know, it's a, a probably a lighter version of, of trying to, uh, for using ex- external fixators, Mark, um, for, for, um, for all these small mammals and, and whatever other species you want to use it in instead of the traditional sort of, um, um, you know, epoxy putties, etc. Um, for them. So, no, it was great. So the conference was chock-a-block full of these sorts of, um, these sorts of practical advice and um, um, information. And, um, yeah, I was, I was very, very happy with it and um, I had a great time. And I must admit, finally, um, this is the last thing before we, we close off, our three main supporters were there, Mark. The tables were there for, for Oxbow um, and Jen was there. And um, also Andrew from Chemical Essentials, who's the F10 representative. And finally, Doug was there from Microchips Australia and um, – I didn't get much of a chance to talk to all of them in in too much detail, although Doug Doug um, just shook his head when I wandered over to have a bit of a chat to him because he said, how's the podcast going? And we had a little bit of a chat about the podcast. And, and I said, yeah, I, 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 you know, I occasionally mention the – the, um, the vet, tr- vet trek, etc., and, and the live trek, and all that sort of stuff. And he said, "Brendan, you're hopeless. Son. You have no idea what you're talking about, do you? About those things. One day, you need to actually look on my website and work out what each of those do." And uh, and I just looked at him, and said, uh, "Good point, Doug. Good point. Yes. Um. So yes. So it was great to catch up with everybody. And as usual, the most um the most important thing was um catching up with colleagues." 
colleagues and, and meeting new colleagues and um, um, having sitting down and having a, having a good um, little chat to Vittorio as well, even though he, he'd lost his voice for most of the conference. And um, I'm looking forward very much to our conference next year, which we plan to be in the middle of the year, probably July, August in 2020, Mark, and it will be held in Sydney. So, Sydney. Um, Mark, it in, mark it in your diary, Mark, and you need to get to this one because um, – yeah, we missed you this year. So, yeah, let's see if we can get you organised um, to attend next year's. So I think with that, we um, yeah, there's a fair few other um, papers that I wanted to chat about, but we we have run out of time as usual. So um, Mr Outro Man's kicking in. So we will talk to you all next week and have a great week, everybody. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time